Good morning, everybody. Good morning to those of you who are with us online. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm the senior pastor here at AUMC. And uh, today I am joined by Pastor Britt Melrose. Uh, and Britt, I'm going to let you tell them a little bit about yourself. So Britt, who are you? <laughs> hey, um, I'm Britt Melrose. I am campus minister of Arapahoe's college ministry called Center T. Wesley Foundation. And uh, yeah. Uh, we started back in 2014, so I've been a member of Arapo for almost 10 years now. And uh, married to Nicole, we have twin three-year-olds, Denver and Dash, and they go to the day school here at the church, and we just love this place. So grateful, so grateful for this church. And um, I actually know Scott from college. We first met at UNT. Uh, and met at the Wesley Foundation there. Yeah, uh, back in a previous version of both of our lives, so um, that we don't need to get into any storytelling around <laughs> today. Um, so why are we here together today? And that's because we're in the midst of a, of a fall series in worship that we have called Seeing God from the Edges. And we're, we're looking at uh, theology that comes specifically through the lived experiences of people who may not be in the center of social norms or, or the center of the church's norms. And so uh, in the first week, we talked about like that as a basic idea that like your experience and our experience matters. And then last week, we took a look at uh, the lived experience of folks who are deconstructing and reconstructing um, their faiths, because that concept of deconstruction is almost treated like a dirty word in some circles of Christianity today. And today, um, we're going to be taking a look at uh, a story from the Bible, but through a very specific theological lens called queer theology. And I know that the, the phrase queer theology might strike your ears as odd. Maybe it invites curiosity, or, or maybe it's even one that you're uncomfortable with upon first hearing it. And so, Britt, what is queer theology? What do we mean by that? Yeah, um, <clears throat> queer theologians have really tried to reclaim the word so that it's not a slur or weapon, but that it's an empowering term. And uh, so queer theology is meant to be an empowering way of reading the Bible and thinking about God that is beyond binaries, that's expansive, liberating, and centers the experiences of marginalized people. And specifically LGBTQ folks, and that word queer essentially serves as, a, as, a, as an umbrella singular word that captures um, that community, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so what scripture are we going to be looking at today? So we're looking at the story of Joseph from Genesis, uh, Joseph in the dream coat. And it's a story that Scott actually preached on back in June and got a lot of flack for because apparently Scott hates Donny Osmond. So, uh, yeah. Honestly, honestly, I stand by it. I will die on that hill. Um, no, please don't email me anymore. I... I um, I relent. It was a really good sermon, though. And it was so today good. we're going to further explore uh, the story through the lens of queer theology. Okay, so um, just so that we're all on the same page, because maybe you kind of remember the Joseph story, maybe you have no idea about the Joseph story. So here's the part that's important to know before we get into it is that Joseph is first introduced as the son of Jacob. So let's talk about Jacob for a moment. Jacob uh, was uh, this uh, brother of Esau, Jacob and Esau, the story of the two brothers who were very different from each other. And immediately one thing we can notice this Sunday is that they each occupied one, a very normative gender role. Esau was like the classic, quote unquote, manly man. Uh, he was even described kind of hyperbolically as, as 
having so much hair that Jacob had to wear the skin of a goat to pretend to be him one time. Um, and he was a hunter and an outdoorsy guy, and he was his dad's favorite. They had this really close connection. And, and Jacob was described in Genesis as working in the common places where women in those days would work. He was with his mom cooking in the kitchen or doing other things at home while Esau was out slaying the wild beasts, right? And, and I think Genesis is setting up this, this uh, dynamic on purpose. That we are meant to notice that like, wow, one of these guys uh, lives within the very clear expectation of the heroic male and one does not. And that story around them that we're not going to get fully into kind of plays with that dynamic to a degree. Um, and so knowing their relationship and that dynamic leads us then into Genesis 37, where we are introduced to Jacob's sons. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph, and he seems to stick out. He seems to be a bit of a favorite. Yeah, he sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, scholars point out that Joseph seems to be more feminine than his brothers. Uh, we see examples of that throughout his life. And um, even maybe neurodiverse, um, scholars have said that uh, he's different in many ways from his brothers. And, um, and it says that in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 37, it says that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other children and gave him the robe or the multicolored coat. Uh, and the word in Hebrew for that robe is ketnet pasim. Ketnet Pasim is only referenced one other time in the entire Bible. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 13 when, when talking about Tamar. And the text says, Now Tamar had on a Ketnet Pasim, for this is how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed in earlier times. So in other words, the Ketnet Pasim is described here as a princess dress. And that means that Jacob gifted his son Joseph a princess dress. Now, was Joseph a member of the LGBT community? Probably not. Uh, we, don't, we don't know. We don't have any evidence of that. I don't think the writers had a conception of LGBT identity as an orientation in the way we understand it today. And I don't really think it matters. But what matters is that LGBT people can relate to having the desire to be affirmed and loved. We all want to be affirmed and loved by our parents, by our families. Jacob loves his son in all of his uniqueness, and Jacob gives Joseph this extravagant gift of the Ketnet Pasim, and he loves Joseph just the way he is, and we all want that. So I found this first, <coughs> pardon me, I found this first point really fascinating because when I preached this text a few months ago, I totally skipped this part of the story. In fact, my reading of Joseph was pretty hard on Joseph, if I'm being pretty honest. The whole idea was that maybe Joseph was a bit of a jerk as a, as a young guy. What I missed, though, was this moment of affirmation, the, the famous Donny Osmond moment. Maybe I have stuff to work out on my own that I skipped over that. Um, but I think maybe, too, one reason I, I skipped and glossed over this moment of affirmation is going back to the idea of human experience matters. Um, you know, obviously, as, as a person growing up, all of us want to be affirmed. And yet, um, maybe I have not uh, lacked for that affirmation in the way that others have, right? Especially for folks in the LGBTQ community. I've never had to wonder if my parents were going to affirm my personhood or who I am. Um, and, and so maybe that's why I gloss over that part of the story at first, and that's also why 
having these different theological lenses um, that are from experiences that, that are not our own uh, is so critically important as Christians because um, what seems to me like an obvious part of the story is actually like a don't blink and miss it. This is maybe a crucial part of the story. So I just want to say thanks to Britt for ruining my old sermon and making it better. Um, but seriously, I, I, I love the way this has opened up this text in a different way. I'd never noticed that before. I loved your sermon. I, oh, I hadn't heard. <laughs> well, when I, um, when I read this story, I didn't catch Scott's message about sanctifying grace. And so by tapping into our own experiences, we really are able to see the fullness of the story and the fullness of God. Yeah. So... Joseph's story continues then, and, and he has these dreams, and this is, we, we talked about this a few months ago, so I'm going to paraphrase for now, but he has these series of dreams that he then relays to his brother that are all about, in his mind, how great he's going to be and how they're all going to bow down to him. And so his brothers obviously don't like this, and it creates strife within, within his family uh, to the point that his brothers are literally ready to murder him. Like, they take him out into the, into the woods, essentially into the wilderness. They lead him out there, and they have a plan where they are going to murder their brother because they cannot stand um, how they feel like he is being uh, treated as a favorite or affirmed in maybe a way that they are not. And then one of the brothers, Reuben, in an almost comical sense, but there's like a dark comedy to it, says, well, wait, wait, wait. We're not murderers, guys. Let's just sell them into slavery instead, right? Which is like, wow, what a good brother, right? Um, and, and I think frequently in Scripture, in the Jewish tradition, there is meant to be this layer of almost divine comedy on top of real life. Um, another example of that might be the story of Jonah, where there's a lot of dark humor woven throughout that story. Um, but I also think that, that, the, that the text is, is giving this moment where Joseph lands in a pit, and it's, it's really beginning to, to separate the tension because for people in the Jewish tradition, they, they already kind of know how Joseph's story is going to end with him rising to this place of prominence. And so by forcing him down, physically down, into a pit of slavery, and not just general servitude to like a household, but going to be sold off as a slave in the Egyptian empire, this would be the lowest possible rock bottom one person could hit. I think that it's trying to help us to see in our own life story, no matter how low you think your life has been or how high you hope your life could be, like somehow Joseph's story still holds that. Um, and yet I also notice how the brothers are minimizing the, the dark and, and stark reality of the pit, right? Like I said, it's, it's darkly humorous, but it's painful where they think like, well, we're, we're not that awful. Let's just sell him into slavery. Like I think... As folks who don't have, maybe, maybe not everyone in this room has that like rock bottom pit moment. Maybe uh, some of us ha have not been in a position where we felt abandoned or, or neglected to that degree. And, and quite frankly, sometimes we can minimize that experience for others or we can think, oh, it's not that bad. Or we don't really take notice of just how bad things can be for people. And I think I see Joseph in the pit as that moment where we have a choice to acknowledge that as real for either ourselves or for others or to not. But if we don't, then we're, we're potentially missing out on where the story takes us next. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Britt, yeah. What, what thoughts do you have there? LGBT people can really relate to the pit, I think, uh, to the experience of violence, bullying, um, but the story doesn't end there. And so, um, yeah, Joseph doesn't stay in the pit. So what happens next? So. Then there's this lengthy storytelling of Joseph sort of rising from the pit 
to his position of prominence in, in uh, Pharaoh's court. And that's done through a series of dreams and then um, revealing those dreams to people in, in Pharaoh's court until essentially he, he ends up like VP of Egypt, right? Um, and, and so that's where we come to at the end of Genesis, which is where we're going to spend most of our time now, um, it, where the story is preparing for this sort of um, reconvergence. In the same way, if you'll remember, Jacob and Esau's story is preparing for them to one day meet again. Joseph is now sort of preparing to meet his brothers again. And, um, and so in Genesis uh, 44, there's this sort of back and forth where Joseph, they don't recognize him. And he starts to play these games with them in a way of like, well, bring this and then bring this. And where's that cup of mine? And he's doing this really weird. You can't tell if he's being tongue in cheek. You can't tell if he's being petty. You can't tell if he's being mean spirited. And then that we sort of feel this tension building, building, building. And then in 45, it says this, Joseph could no longer control himself in front of all of his attendants. And so he declared, everyone leave now, right? It's, he's screaming. And so no one stayed with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. It's just him and the brothers in the room. It says he wept so loudly that the Egyptians and Pharaoh's houses, or household heard him. So they can hear him through stone walls, right? Um, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? And his brothers could not respond because it says they were terrified of him. So Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they moved closer because he's the VP of Egypt. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. And so even if you think you know how this story might end, imagine for a second that you don't. And you feel this tension rising, and Joseph can no longer control himself, and he sends everyone out of the room except for the brothers, and he demands to know if his father, the one person who actually loved him, is still alive. And then he brings them in closer, and you can almost hear his, his voice growing quieter. And I, I cannot imagine what the brothers were feeling in terms of terror, because they know what's going to happen next is this guy is going to make us slaves to him or worse, right? He's going to pay us back for everything that we did to him. But... What, what happens next, Britt? Joseph then says, now don't be upset. <clears throat> don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. We've already had two years of famine in the land, and there are five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to make sure you would survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. So here Joseph claims his story is sacred. Joseph isn't letting his brothers off the hook. He acknowledges their harmful actions, but then he says, but don't beat yourself up over it, because God has been working in and through all of this to bring me to this place so that I could save lives. I like to imagine Joseph here standing in front of his brothers in his full glory, in the fullness of his identity, wearing a brand new, beautiful Ketnet Pasim. So why, why does that image resonate with you, Britt? I'm curious. Well, his brothers tore apart his original Ketnet Pasim. Um, and, and so I just think that this was, this was his brothers getting to see how powerful their brother was and, and affirmed in his identity. And I'm, 
I think also I'm curious as, as, um, as LGBTQ people will certainly have, um, e even the best of stories come with really difficult moments and seasons and times. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that he sort of reclaims his story as sacred. Mm -hmm. Why is that an important thing to notice in this text for you? Yeah, I think that LGBT people have to do a lot of reframing of uh, the pain that we've experienced and then see how God has been working. Uh, not that God causes the pit, mm. uh, but that, that, that we can come out of the pit and that our stories can be redeemed and that God work, is working in our lives, whether we're in the pit or whether we're VP of Egypt. <laughs> And so, because I, 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 that, that strikes a chord with me, because I think this is where we can expand our vision, because I think one mistake we can make when looking through different lenses of theology is to say, for instance, that like, well, feminist theology is, is for women to read the Bible, or liberation theology is for marginalized people, or for queer theology is really for queer people. That's not really for someone like me if we don't align with any of those adjectives. And, but here, like, I'm seeing queer theology is really opening up the text in a way that everyone can access it mm. in a new way, right? Yeah. Because whether or not you identify as LGBTQ, I imagine that everybody here in the room or online, um, you have parts of your story that um, I would hope theologically we don't believe that God caused that pain, that trauma, that misery, that sorrow, and yet there's something redemptive that either has come out of that or could, if you're going through it right now, could come out of that. And, and like seeing that through the lens of queer theology here helps me to, helps me to read this text differently than I might otherwise. Um, and so, Britt, I want to talk about, I want to talk about us as a, as a church. You were here um, during um, the, the congregational discernment that we had a few years back. For those who don't know, um, as United Methodist Church in 2019, uh, our denomination um, uh, did some things globally at a legislative level that we're not going to get into right now because I have too much <laughs> respect for your time, um, and it would take another 35 minutes to break that down. But what it caused us to do was to say, we want to be a church that very publicly affirms who we are as an open and affirming congregation, specifically by allowing um, and welcoming same-gender weddings in our sanctuary and by supporting LGBTQ candidates for ordained ministry. And, and you were here during that time of discernment that led up to that vote. And so uh, I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit how Joseph's story kind of helps us to see our own story um, from that moment and, and, and into today. Yeah. Um, the vote for Arapaho to become open and affirming passed overwhelmingly, so it was clear that it was just an affirmation of who we already are as a church. Uh, one of the few concerns that would come up during the conversation about it was, will we lose a part of our identity or will the makeup of the church change? Uh, but ultimately, the decision uh, only helped us to align more with who we are and to grow, really. Well, and that's the thing is, you know, what I notice in this story, um, especially now looking at it in the way that we have for the last couple of weeks together, is that, you know, Joseph's brothers, at first, they leveraged their power to, to make him suffer. And, but now they're coming back in a totally different power dynamic. And, and it's because of Joseph's grace and because of the way that God redeemed his story that they're now able to quite literally eat in a season of famine. 
and a season of famine that's going to continue. Like the, the literal part of the story is that they are there because they have no food in the land. And Joseph was wise enough to build up these storehouses of food for Egypt so that people could continue eating during famine times. So they are now there quite literally with their lives on the line and they're going to be able to survive and not just survive but to eat well for the next several years while the, the land is going through a season of famine. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about what you just said um, about this season of discernment um, that Arapaho went through. And I can't help but notice, you know, call it God's handiwork, but the fact that the vote was taken mere months before COVID-19 hits, right? And uh, church shuts down and we all go online. But then something else interestingly happens as people begin to evaluate their church home in a really uh, big way. This is something that's happened all over uh, everywhere um, where suddenly you're at home and you're like, I don't know, is this the church I want to be at? What other, what other churches are out there? And um, the fact that we took the stance that we did in such a public way and allowed that to lead us, it, it did not lead us to become a, a narrow one-note church. It actually opened us up to, I would say, feast in a season of famine, right? I don't need to tell you that this has been a difficult few years for most churches. And yet we are one of the few, I would say less than 5%, that are growing in a season when most churches are wondering how they can keep moving forward. In fact, just to illustrate that, I'm curious, if you started attending Arapaho any time since January 2020, stop, do the math in your head, If you are new to Arapaho since January 2020, would you just say out loud in a way that I can hear you, I'm here. (laughs) Okay, so the decision, yeah, that's that's a a clap moment. I almost made you stand, but that was gonna freak a lot of people out. (laughs) You're like, I didn't think we were that kind of church, Pastor Scott. Um, The decision to operate with a leading foot of grace Um, and being able to name our fears, name our anxieties, but still take a step forward in faith anyways, that has opened us up to a blessing um, that is unique uh, amongst uh, other other Christian communities, and I would say is is God-designed. I believe that God is doing something here because of our willingness to take faithful steps forward. And so, like seeing our story in the Joseph story and seeing the decision um, to be open and affirming is not simply like, oh, aren't we such good people? but rather like what blessings are we going to receive because we open our doors all the wider as a result. Like that, Cal, I get goosebumps like thinking about what it has meant for this community. Um, and I could just keep talking, but I'm going to stop. And, and so Britt, it, as, as we went back and forth, just so you know, Britt loves preaching. Um, she loves nothing more than standing up in the spotlight, having all attention on her. Um, I think several times she tried to push the end of the sermon back to me. And I said, Britt, it is important that you have the final word in this talk. And so this is where I very uh, elegantly say, Britt, what is your final word okay. for us? What do you want to leave for us? All right. Um... It can be hard for an LGBT person to walk in the doors of our church, even though we know that we are fully open and affirming and loving and, um, but LGBT people have been harmed by the larger church. And for an LGBT person to walk in our doors, they've probably done a lot of personal work to get to the place where they can walk in the doors. And it's a rare thing. and, And I think it's a miracle when it happens. When Joseph talks to his brothers at the end of the Genesis story, 
we can see the personal work that he's done to reframe an extremely painful situation of bullying and violence. But Joseph didn't stay in the pit. He claims his power. He recognizes how God's been at work all along. And he uses his position to save others. So it's a call for us to claim the power that God has to work in our lives, even through the hard experiences we have, and how God heals us and works through us to liberate others through our stories. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in thanking Britt for her presence with us?